You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Everybody, welcome to Abacabu Cafe. This is the Kimagore Orange Road podcast on the internet, motherfuckers. You better believe that. I searched high and low last year. I couldn't find another podcast that covered Kimagore Orange Road exclusively. I found a bunch of different anime podcasts that mentioned it, but none that devoted an entire podcast to that shit. So that's what I'm here to do. I'm your host, Jason Almy. And tonight I want to talk about. Some of the things that are good to know before going into the show, we're about to launch headfirst into a um, series of episodes covering the entirety of the television series, the OVA, and the movies. So we're, we're about to launch into the, the actual meat of this podcast, but I did want to take an episode here to discuss a few of the, the, the themes, the motifs that uh, we're going to analyze that are going to come up. Uh, throughout the show uh, that are that are consistent throughout the the anime and that will help us to to derive some of the meaning from from this show. Uh, I had planned to do this podcast. Early plans for this podcast started swirling around my brain in July of 2020. It was over last year, over the the bulk of last year that I I performed a rewatch of the um, of the anime series because they had released. The television series, the OVA, the first movie on Blu-ray in a pretty gloriously remastered edition, thanks to Discotech. And um, availing myself of copies of those, I, I wanted to pop those in and, and rewatch it. It had been about 12 years or so since I'd watched the series, um, despite having the DVDs. It, it had been a while since I had watched all the way through, and I, I was just due. So... Uh, I definitely had planned on creating this podcast uh, as a place to kind of warehouse my thoughts. I talked about that on the last on the last episode, a place to to put in my own thoughts and analysis somewhere that other people could listen because that's what I wanted last summer, um, in summer of 2020. But then, of course, uh, with the fall 
of 2020, we saw the passing of the creator of the Orange Road media franchise, that is uh, Mr. Matsumoto Izumi. Uh, when he passed on October the 6th of 2020, um, I decided that I probably need to do an episode at the very beginning here of this podcast series. That's why this is the second episode in the series of, of podcasts that I'm going to be releasing. But I wanted to, I wanted to take some time during this episode to not only talk about the themes and the motifs, as I mentioned a moment ago, but I also want to pay a little tribute to Matsumoto Izumi, even though we're going to be talking about the anime, um, the anime series, the, the television episodes, the OVA, the, the, the movies, as most of you probably know, he was really only involved in passing in these things. Uh, most manga creators don't really have a lot to do with the anime productions that come about based on their, their manga works. Um, sometimes they might be consulted. Uh, they, they obviously provide the framework that, that shapes the story of the anime, but oftentimes they are not overly involved. Um, in fact, sometimes they're not really very involved at all. And my sense is that was probably the case for, uh, Matsumoto. He's probably not very involved in the production of the anime that we're going to be talking about. Nonetheless, he uh, created the franchise with the manga in 1984. So he created the characters, he created the, the scenarios, the themes, and most of the anime uh, episodes, most of the television series and OVA are based pretty directly on his work. I mean, they're adaptations, so there are liberties that are made and some are... Um, there's some synthesis of some of his manga stories so it, it's not a, a kind of a direct, you know, panel to screen conversion. There's a little bit of adaptation. And so there are other important people that were involved in the production of this anime. Of course, we'll talk about them throughout the course of this podcast. Um, people like Tarada Kenji, he was kind of the head writer for the 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 um, anime series. And he was also even the the author of the Shinkor novels. Um, he's sort of maybe akin to like a showrunner with a Kobayashi Osamu as series director. He's kind of the overall director. He wasn't an episode director, but sort of an overall kind of a showrunner type position to, to strike an analogy to what we have today in, in television programs. Of course, you've got different writers and directors working on each episode in order to maintain a, a tight production schedule and get those episodes ready on an annual basis. But then you have people who maintain the overall quality or overall consistency of a television show. And for um, Kimagure Onge Road, that was Terara Kenji and Kobayashi Osamu. And those were the guys who were, were keeping track of that. Um, and so these two individuals probably did have more direct control over the anime than Matsumoto did. Nonetheless, when we talk about Kimagure Onge Road, whether we're talking about the manga or more commonly we're talking about the anime, because again, the anime has been widely available in the United States with the exception of a few blackout years last decade. It's been more available in the United States than the manga has been and is more well-known, I think, across uh, the Western world in Italy and France. Um, I think the manga has been available in those territories, but the anime is certainly a little bit more well-known. And so anytime... There's discussion of the anime. Of course, um, Takara Kemi comes up because she did the character designs. Her artwork, her artwork is very prolific across the internet and different 
publications having to do with Orange Road. Um, but she's, of course, not the creator of the characters. I mean, she may have designed the way they look in a lot of our minds when we close our eyes and we see those characters. But um, it really was Matsumoto who who birthed this franchise into the world um, in much the same way as we talk about George Lucas when we talk about Star Wars. George Lucas didn't have shit to do with the last four or five Star Wars movies that came out, but nonetheless, this is his this is his brainchild, Star Wars. So uh, just as it is with George Lucas having created that that franchise, even though it's kind of branched off and other creators have have taken the baton from him, um, with with Orange Road, we're going to talk about Matsumoto uh, as the the progenitor, as the kind of the father of this series, as the guy who gave us. This media franchise that uh, we love so much, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm presuming that you love Orange Road uh, as much as I do, as much as the rest of us. So his control over the anime is 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 probably pretty minimal, but nonetheless, we, we're looking at him as the guy. He's the guy. And I, I do want to pay a tribute to him because he passed away. I do want to... I want to say lovely things about about him, but really there's not a whole lot known about his personal life. There are some interviews out there on the internet that that are uh, subtitled in English that that one can go obtain. I don't really want to repeat any facts or trivia about this guy's life that are well known, um, something that you can easily obtain via Google search. Uh, at the same time, I never had any personal contact with him. So somebody like uh, my acquaintance, Cat Callahan, has, and she may come on this podcast in a later episode to talk a little bit more about uh, both her overall feelings and impressions on Kimagure Orange Road, but also maybe some of her up-close-and-personal experiences with uh, Matsumoto-sensei. Um, but what I do want to talk about is I want to talk about Matsumoto, I guess his creation of, of Orange Road and how it ties to the themes and motifs that I want to explore with this podcast. So one thing that comes up in interviews with Matsumoto that, that is probably fairly well known among fans. So I'm going to assume you guys know this already, but he wanted to be a rock musician initially instead of a mangaka. So he was not originally uh, scheduled or he was not originally attempting to be a manga author. He was originally wanting to play music and play rock music. He was inspired by rock music of the time. Um, So Matsumoto played the drums. Interestingly enough, Kasanga is is portrayed as playing the drums, uh, such as in the, um, the second opening um, when the the shots of them all kind of jamming and rocking out during that Orange Mystery opening play, there are images of Kasuga playing the drums, as well as in episode uh, 43, when when the band is formed, the Picarus are, are formed, uh, Kasuga is drafted uh, somewhat against his will to, to play drums in that band. So there's immediately a parallel drawn here between Matsumoto himself and Kasuga. There was a lot of Matsumoto's love of pop rock that helped shape Kimagure Orange Road. Bands like Toto, Genesis. So the anime itself is is very well known, beloved, even for its its soundtrack. That's one of the things about Orange Road that's consistently praised across the board, across the internet, anywhere you're going to find fans. Like me, I'm going to tell you the soundtrack fucking slaps. To this day, I, I have no problem, no qualms popping in. 
I almost said popping in a CD. I don't know when the last time I popped a CD into anything was. I don't know. I guess it's a turn of phrase, but I haven't popped a CD into anything since, I don't know, 2007. Regardless, every summer I'll listen to Orange Mystery. That song just fucking slaps. This, the anime is just filled with fucking bops. And so I doubt that that Matsumoto had much say in terms of curating the music. Nonetheless, the, the, the franchise is created by a guy who was an aspiring rock musician who, who loves these pop rock staples. Undoubtedly, Matsumoto's, Matsumoto's love of pop culture, of music and film, definitely shaped uh, Orange Road. For instance, we all know that uh, Ayuka was modeled in part on Phoebe Cates, the, the physical image of the way Ayukawa was drawn. Uh, if you look at the cover of the third Tonkoban of, of the, of the uh, Orange Road manga, Matsumoto depicts Ayukawa in a red bikini, and it's nearly identical to the one worn by Phoebe Cates in the infamous jack-off scene in, in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where Judge Reinhold's character is like wanking in the bathroom, and she's getting out of the pool, and it's all slow motion, and Phoebe Cates is wearing that red bikini. Ayukawa is drawn in in a nearly identical red bikini, and it's it, it is an obvious reference. I mean, what 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 Matsumoto is doing there is is letting you know, in no uncertain terms, where the um, where the inspiration for uh, Ayuko's physical form came from. He's also letting you know that he's aware of this pop culture element, this this American film, American sex comedy film, because that became. Uh, such an inspiration, such a basis for the 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 scenarios that he lays out in the manga. Also, frequent location Abakabu and this podcast's namesake uh, takes its name from the Genesis album Abacab. So it's another reference. You don't have to get it. I didn't get it when I was fourteen. When I was fourteen and watching the show for the first time, I wasn't a huge Genesis fan. It wasn't until I got a little older that I I discovered Genesis, but. The idea is that there's the the Genesis album Abacab and uh, Abacabu is 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 directly influenced by that uh, and named after that as as a reference that you don't need to understand in order to enjoy. You'll enjoy the the anime and the manga just fine if you're not aware of Genesis at all. And yet he's putting in these little pop culture references. He's it's a way of of kind of autographing your work, of signing your work, of embedding these little things that you love in this thing that you're producing, uh, so which makes it kind of special. You know, it's, there's a little bit of him imbued in what he produces. And I, I think that can be said of all art. Any, any, any art is going to contain a little bit of the DNA of its creator. And this is what Matsumoto is, has, has done. He's even drawn uh, Ayukawa as a rock star. There's, there's um, several uh, images that he's drawn of, of Ayukawa just kind of looking like a punk rock, very 80s, kind of ripped and torn, you know, leather and and studs and spikes and stuff looking kind of like a badass. But that's, again, an influence of this kind of this pop rock scene that he's a part of at the time. Um, Phil Collins was the drummer for Genesis, the, the band, again, that was so influential uh, for Matsumoto that he was so in love with. Phil Collins was a drummer for Genesis. Okay, so um, could this be the reason that Kasuga and, and maybe even Matsumoto himself played the drums. Is this a, a reference to Phil Collins or, or an homage to Phil Collins? Possibly. That kind of brings me back to the idea of Kasuga and Matsumoto sharing an instrument. Is it possible that there are more parallels between 
Kasuga and Matsumoto. I personally contend that Kasuga is a proxy for Matsumoto in the story. Both Ayukawa and Shikaru-chan were based on actual people. You know, Phoebe Cates for, for the physique of Ayukawa. But he uh, famously has said that Kasuga was not based on, on anyone. So Orange Road, as such, has kind of always struck me as a little bit of like this male wish fulfillment fantasy. Um, and that it was kind of Matsumoto's creation to be sort of a, a fantasy of his. And, and chances are other people would, would uh, share that. And, and so that's going to bring me back to some of the themes and motifs of Orange Road. And I'll, I'll circle back to, um, to the, the, the um, Kasuga as a proxy for Matsumoto and Orange Road as, as a kind of a wish fulfillment fantasy in just one moment. But with the, the themes and motifs of the show, um, we have front and center the, the idea of the springtime of, uh, of youth, seishun, uh, as it's referred to in, in the opening. And he's saying, seishun uh, shitemas. He's living the springtime of his youth. That's, that's important. So the seasons, not just in Orange Road, but in, in, uh, commonly in, in literature, seasons are a metaphor for the phases of life. Spring is kind of this new life. These new um, flowers are blooming. Uh, the, these, these, the world is kind of coming back to life. You know, the, the, it's the time of birth. It's the time of rebirth. Um, it can be symbolic of, of youth, of this um, kind of adolescence and and of new relationships too these new things that are budding these new uh new relationships coming together summer of course is um kind of a more of a young adulthood it's very bright uh, vibrant there's long days the time is longer you know the the the, the sunlight you get more sunlight out of a 24-hour period so you've got this this sense of like a longer amount of time you've got you've got time to spare you've got time to accomplish the things that you want to in life your life is ahead of you in summertime. Fall is a little bit more uh, indicative of middle age. The wrinkles start to show. The hair starts to get a little gray, like the leaves dying and the and the um, the harvest and and things being culled. That natural culling. Then winter, of course, is is um, old age. Is is uh, gray and white and a little dreary. The days are very short, meaning that the time is is not long. You don't have much time left. The sand is is now leaving the hourglass. There's not a whole lot left there. And uh, death, winter symbolizes death via the, the all of the trees are dead, with the exception of the evergreens. But the, the, the landscape is very, very different. It's the opposite of the spring. So possibly with the promise of rebirth here, uh, because of course the, the seasons are cyclic, this show... Orange Road starts and ends in springtime. So there's the starting the show off in spring, I think, is uh, a metaphor. I think it can be read as a metaphor for this new beginning. Costco, of course, is moving to this new town. He's going to be meeting all of these new people and then engaging in these new relationships and beginning this uh, this adventure. So that that happens in spring as uh, as this um, metaphor for this, these new relationships, this new chapter in his life. Uh, here in the show, summer actually receives particular emphasis despite the show starting and ending in spring. Summer is really the one that gets driven home, and that's that's because the summer is so um, 
vibrant and so uh, energetic, and there's there's just so much potential there with summer. Um, there are uh, there's a a lot of the episodes are set in summer, even when the the OVA were released. Several of those were set during the summertime as well to kind of increase the percentage of episodes set in the summertime. But with the the show's aesthetic, that's really where uh, summertime is romanticized. And um, you'll see that a lot of the the music, the song titles and lyrics, like Night of Summerside, right? They throw that in there, Night of Summerside. That's part of the, the title of the song. The narrative, really, if you read a, a, a translation of the lyrics in English, the narrative of the song really has nothing to do with summer per se. The narrative about a, a woman jumping into this guy's car and they screech off, it, it doesn't matter when this is happening. This could be happening in February. It could be happening in November. It doesn't need to be summer, yet there's a, there's a romanticism there. It's important that they they use summer in the title and in the refrain of that song. Orange Mystery. The narrative does include summer imagery with the the beach and the sun and when summer's over, um, it's sayonara. He calls the subject his Natsu no Tenshi, that's the his his um angel of summer, or summer angel or whatever. So he's he's obviously kind of romanticizing those long summer days, the the lack of responsibility, the 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 um the beach setting, the the sort of, I guess, the more skimply clothes, the fan service there. I mean, all of this stuff brings us back to to uh, Orange Road. Of course, none of this. I mean, all of this stuff says Orange Road. Natsu no Mirage is the um, the the ending theme for the first season, and so again, we have this summer mirage. This the, again, li- reading the 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 translation of the lyrics of Natsu no Mirage is. Not really anything to do with summer per se. It, again, it could be winter, it could be fall. It doesn't really matter. But the idea of of associating these characters, specifically the the character of Ayuko, with with summertime, is a means of really kind of uh, romanticizing uh, and, and creating this this aesthetic of like youth culture. And so, um, you know. The, the 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 spring and summer are very important for the show. I think the summer is really like that's the aesthetic of the show. Uh, and then I also think that the spring bookend is symbolic. We'll talk about that more when we get to episode forty-eight. How DeCapo is is kind of repeat from the top or repeat from the beginning, and and so it, the idea of of this this cycle. Uh, returning to the beginning to to repeat another another round of the cycle is I think important, but we will we will talk about that as one of the themes and motifs as we as we hit the various episodes throughout this podcast. I think it might be helpful also to to look at um, Orange Road as kind of a Japanese Wonder Years. Um, I know Cat Callahan has previously made that analogy in some of her writings, even a podcast appearance of hers, I believe, as well, and. I think it's a helpful analogy. I think it might be worth noting that um, Orange Road had actually completed broadcasting before the Wonder Years began, so there there can't be any um, there can't be any accusations of Orange Road lifting any of its material or any of its themes from the Wonder Years. Uh, but I think it's still a kind of a helpful analogy to think about the both series kind of hinge on the protagonist's relative inexperience with romance with sex. Um, Really, both of these shows don't work very well if the main character is 
super experienced and has a lot of, uh, of knowledge and is able to kind of talk to women and get what he wants or, and, and, uh, you know, obtain sex easily because then you just don't have a show, right? There's, that's not the, the, the theme of these shows. The, both these series were produced in a similar time frame, Um, but I think maybe what's very interesting about the analogy between these two shows that didn't get mentioned previously that I haven't heard mentioned at least previously is that um, both of these series were intentionally crafted to invoke nostalgia. Orange Road uh, contains a lot of nostalgia. And part of that is because it's a 30 plus year old anime at this point. So a lot of us have watched this thing. I watched this, this anime 25 years ago. So there's nostalgia there for me because this is one of the shows I watched as a 14-year-old. There's there's something there for me. But even, even beyond that, for us old-timers who have been watching the show for the last couple of decades, there's that nostalgia. There's the nostalgia of this being something of ours from when we were young. But I think that there's a certain amount of nostalgia that's baked into Orange Road that uh, was crafted. It was It was placed there. For a reason. So Wonder Years achieves its nostalgia through its period setting. It's set in the late 60s to early 70s. So people watching the Wonder Years in the late 80s and early 90s, maybe they were alive during the 60s and early 70s, and they could remember back kind of fondly on those times as the, the those times were presented in a romanticized fashion. Uh, certainly for us today, that is the case with Orange Road. I mean, Orange Road is unabashedly 80s. I mean, it, it screams 80s. There's no mistaking it for a, a show that came out in, during any other period. It, it's um, it's almost a period piece looking back on it today. Of course, at the time, it wasn't a period piece. They were t- creating something that was contemporaneous. But um, I don't think that's just it. They, they communicate the nostalgia in Orange Road via uh, visual cues as well. So with with Orange Road, there's this sort of romanticism of the of of the youth culture of the summertime that kind of makes us harken back to previous seasons of our own. You can think back to that summer. Maybe it was after graduation. Maybe it was after turning sixteen. But regardless, there's probably a time in our lives that we can think back to. And so tying it in with the the um, the almost fetishization of these seasons, especially summer, kind of brings back those memories for us too. And, and so I think that that was intentional on their part. I don't actually believe that there's any intertextuality between the Wonder Years and, and Orange Road. I doubt that any of the production staff of Wonder Years was, was very familiar with Matsumoto's work. Certainly possible, but really none of that stuff was commercially available in the United States in the late 80s when, when Wonder Years was going into production. It, was really, it wasn't until the Wonder Years was completely done before Animago released the, the first little bit of, of Orange Road materials here in a, in a way that was consumable, practically consumable for, for an American audience. So I don't want to, I don't want to mention the Wonder Years again, and I won't, but, um, because I don't believe there's any intertextuality there, but I did want to mention that because it does lead me into one of the themes, which is the nostalgia I was mentioning. So, uh, a modern viewer, we're of course going to look back on a 30 year old show, um, because a lot of shows, are products of their time. And a lot of movies are products of their time. Things like Better Off Dead or One Crazy Summer. If you guys have seen those, there was a day and age in 1985 when Better Off Dead was brand new, when it was just released. You might have gone to see it in the theaters on on opening night. I went to see Billy Madison in theaters on opening night. And 
at the time, it didn't seem dated. It seemed like a brand new movie. And I pissed my pants laughing. And I still revisit Billy Madison, but watching it now, it's quite obvious that Billy Madison came out in 1995 or 1994. It was, it's obvious that it was a mid nineties Adam Sandler film, the, the styles, the, the, um, the, the, the fashion, the, the, even the music that's used. Of course, movies become products of their time. It's very difficult to make a timeless film that, that doesn't, um, orient itself within some kind of, of context of a year. Um, but again, I do believe that there's some uh, inbuilt nostalgia semiotics within within Orange Road. For instance, one of the first ones that I encountered was watching the OVA openings. The the um, uh, it's not the first two, but it's like the 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 latter part, the latter six OVAs. And the 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 song that plays during this opening, of course, um, talks about. The, the relationship is in, in a past tense, but then you also have this visual. This is where the semiotics come in. You have these visual cues because they're replaying the the uh, initial meeting of Kasunga and Ayukawa from episode one, but they, they add this sepia tint and they age it with a little bit of a filter. So it looks like you're watching an old film. It looks like you're watching some old eight millimeter film. It's somebody's memory, right? Um, and so I mentioned that first because that Having watched the OVA first, because that's what was released first here in the United States, I watched the OVA before seeing the television show. There was already this sense of nostalgia built in for these characters having met uh, previously. And then even looking back on their meeting in a romanticized way and kind of a, a um, nostalgic way, it makes, I mean, if you've ever been in love, you can look back on the times that you've met that person. I can think about meeting my wife in our early our early interactions, and you might have a significant other as well that you think about your early interactions with that person. And, and so it's easy to be nostalgic about those times, and that's very present in the visual cues that they're presenting there in the OVA openings. Uh, very importantly, every single television episode, all 48 of them, ends with the camera panning out on a photograph, a still image typically of the the very last image of the of the show it'll it'll do what a lot of sitcoms did which is it'll it'll pause on a still frame and then a frame will appear a border a, a photograph border will appear as if that frame that still frame was was a photo print almost like you're looking through an album as you go through the 48 episodes each episode ends with a photograph like that is a, a memory that someone held on to one of the characters, maybe Ayukawa, maybe Kasunga, maybe they're relaying this story later on in these photos are companion pieces that go with it. So it's, I think it's very important that every single episode ends with this photograph. And so we get this still image. That ties into the, the um, third ending for the show, Dance and Memories. So again, it's it's the idea of kind of taking this walk through, walk down memory lane, sort of going through these memories, like looking through a photo album. Photo album may be a thing of the past. Maybe that was something that was more popular during the time of Orange Road. I don't know how many of you guys listening to this have a photo album. I, I don't really. I don't know the last time I printed a photo. I mean, they're all they're all digital. I mean, Facebook is kind of the new photo album, the, the uploads that are there. Definitely 30 years ago, the only option you had for photos was a physical copy. You made a print. And so that ties into the idea of 
of kind of keepsakes of, of holding on to these memories of this time in, in their lives. And, and again, these seasons that are so important that are almost fetishized. I'll highlight those, those themes certainly as they apply to each episode as we go through this podcast. One of the other themes um, is conformity versus acting out almost as like a subversion of expectations. So the theme here is that there's sort of a depth to people. People have layers. So there's the part of people that you see, what they want to show the world, but then there's the part of themselves that they might only share with the, the ones who are close to them. There's the, the, our inner selves. And, and I think that's a universal truth, but I think that um, it is well portrayed within uh, the Orange Road Media franchise. Uh, and I think that we're going to talk about that as we as we encounter those themes too. Ayukawa is a, a delinquent initially, so that's kind of this idea of her acting out, not conforming to the societal expectation of how Ayukawa should act, and she certainly does not conform to that. Um, that's a big part of her character, or 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 the Kasinga family as sort of freaks. They're they're these espers that have to hide their power. And that's a huge theme of the show is that they constantly have to keep this power under wraps because they're constantly afraid of it coming out, despite the fact that never at any point in time in the manga or in the anime is there ever a revelation that there's a a shadowy government organization that's trying to find them or might do bad things to them when they're found. It's simply a paranoia on their part. There's never a, another side to that paranoia that is, is uh, displayed throughout the anime. So um, they, they certainly perceive themselves as other, as different and as needing to hide that fact. Right. So that's kind of the, uh, the, the part of them that they put forward that they show the world then there's the part that that only a few people within the family circle know, and that's that they're espers. And despite being highly abnormal, the Kasingas are consistently portrayed as normal teens. Kasinga, uh, his sisters, the twins, Manami and Kurumi, are constantly portrayed as, as behaving in the fashion that you would expect from a normal teenager. A normal adolescent would act this way. So you sort of expect something even as the viewer you you might expect some more uh action or or more use of the power but really above all these these they're not trying to be superheroes they're not trying to do anything altruistic with their power they just want to live normal teenage lives and keep their their power under wraps and and like have normal careers and and do normal teenage stuff go on dates hang out with their friends etc eat pizza at a disco at two in the morning on a school night i don't know Later in the series, you, you, we will talk about some of this conformity versus acting out um, as a sort of excuses to act out their, their true desires, to reveal their true desires. So they have sort of the way that they act, the, the way that they portray themselves, but then they, they do have these inner desires that are sometimes revealed, like when uh, the, the um, robot uh, Kyosuke was trying to get Ayuko's nudes, you know, in that episode. So he's hypnotized to, to try to get her nudes. So we'll talk about the, the um, sort of acting out and this, this sort of um, subversion of expectations there a little bit, as well as uh, Ayukua in the, the Mushroom of Truth episode. Those are, those are both good examples of the idea of, of needing this external excuse to sort of behave in the way that you want to towards these people because you're, you're sort of having to conform to these social norms 
And then, um, of course, conformity to these social norms causes you to seek ways to act out. Um, finally, we're going to look at a lot of the intertextuality in this uh, show. Intertextuality being defined in, in film studies and in film theory as um, connections between works. Because if you consume uh, a media franchise like Orange Road, you watch the Orange Road anime. Chances are pretty good you watch other stuff. Maybe you watch other anime. You might be familiar with Maison Okoku. You may be familiar with um, even widely different anime, Evangelion or something like that. You might not even, you might be like me and not really consume any anime at all, but you watch other things. You might watch The Crown on Netflix. You might watch The Witcher on Netflix. You might watch The Boys. Regardless, you consume other forms of media. And certainly Matsumoto did as well. Matsumoto was aware of other media. It's not like the guy didn't go to movies and, and, and see what was out in the theaters or, or play video games or listen to music. And all of that has its place in Orange Road. And our reading of Orange Road can be informed by our knowledge of these other works, our shared knowledge of these other works. Famous works. I mean, think of, of big famous movies, Jaws or or E.T. or Indiana Jones. I realize I just named three Steven Spielberg films, but the fact is these are, are movies that are known, are renowned across the world. And of course, references to such films are going to pop up in other works such as Orange Road. So we're going to see uh, the influence of other works, of other media here. Um, the The teen sex comedy is a big one that is going to have an influence on Orange Road and the way that plays out. Um, the, the intertextuality thing, again, it's not always obvious. The idea of intertextuality is that the, the creators of one work are aware of other works because even though they're creators, they're also consumers. We consume as well as we create. I'm making a podcast right now, but I also listen to podcasts. And in so doing, those podcasts I listen to might have an impact on the way in which I make podcasts or the way in which I distribute podcasts. And thus, there is an intertextuality in media work. And, and it's here in Orange Road as well. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. It's not always obvious, uh, of course. If you don't notice references like the the Genesis Abacab is the the namesake of Abacabo. That's kind of a piece of trivia. It doesn't really matter. It's not going to prevent you from enjoying the story. And a lot of intertextuality works that way. It doesn't prevent you from enjoying a story. It doesn't render the story unintelligible um, or impossible to understand if you don't get the references or if you don't have that textual, that context from, from having watched some of these works or listened to Genesis, for instance. But, but if you do notice them, I do think that it enhances your understanding of the material. It can add subtle layers of meaning, like with, with the, the Phoebe Cates reference and the Fast Times at Ridgemont High reference. Of course, there's, there's not really any overlap in terms of, of a narrative there, but to... To cast Ayukawa in that Phoebe Cates light from Fast Times at Ridgemont High when, when uh, Judge Reinhold's character is masturbating while, while thinking about her and fantasizing about her, you it very much communicates to you the idea that Ayukawa is uh, very sexually attractive, that she, she has this sort of magnetism, and um, that she might have an effect on our protagonist. So it's a subtle way of communicating this by creating an analogy to 
another film work that we might be aware of. So hopefully that helps to explain the, the idea and importance of intertextuality in works. And we also have, this work is an adolescent male wish fulfillment. I did mention that a moment ago when I was talking a little bit more exclusively about um, Matsumoto Sensei, but I think that uh, for a long time, I have read the Orange Road series as uh, Casca being more or less a stand-in for Matsumoto. In 2010, Matsumoto said, there may be quite a bit of myself in Kyosuke. For viewers who are around Kasuga's age when they first watched Orange Road, um, that was me. I was 14 when I first watched Orange Road. I was right about Kasuga's age. Uh, there is sort of a wish for fulfillment here. If you're 14 and you're watching the show, chances are you're pretty sexually inex- inexperienced. So you're inexperienced with relationships. You're inexperienced with the the um, you know with dating and with 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 um, lovers and stuff like that. So, you know, the idea that you could watch this and maybe this is how, how shit works. I mean, it's sort of like a fantasy for, for a young guy who's not, doesn't know how to talk to women, doesn't know really what to do. Um, and then, you know, importantly in another interview from 2010, maybe it was the same interview. It was another interview from 2010 uh, Matsumoto admitted that he was attracted to women who were rebellious, aggressive, a little wild. He's basically saying that the Ayukawa archetype is what he was attracted to. So he, he's already saying that there's a bit of himself in Kyosuke and that um, he himself is attracted to women who are like Ayukawa, nonconformists. So it's safe to say, I think, that, that possibly... Um, Matsumoto is writing what might be his own fantasy, placing him in the shoes of Kasuga. Unlike Ayuko and Shikaru, as I mentioned earlier, Kasuga is not based on anyone in the real world, at least not someone known. Uh, again, it could be based on Matsumoto himself, at least a little bit. But you've got a, a story where these two attractive women are pursuing our protagonist. It, it's obvious pretty obvious wish fulfillment right there. I mean, who wouldn't want attractive people pursuing you? Uh, not to mention the, the protagonist, Kasunga has these telekinetic powers. He's, he can teleport. He can move things with his mind. He can kind of do some cool shit. I mean, how many of us haven't spent time fantasizing about how that would go? What, what ways would you exploit that power? How would you make that work well for you? Also, uh, getting back to the, the idea of the importance of the the seasons and the the fetishization of the summertime you have this idea that he's at this point in his life just like with the summer you know you're off school you're out of school your 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 obligations are very very small very minimal so he's at a point in his life where he doesn't have a career he doesn't have a family to to provide for is very low obligation Again, that's another thing where it's like you're you're unburdened, another element of the fantasy. Uh, so he's at liberty to come and go as he pleases from home. He, I mean, we're talking about a 15-year-old who goes to discos, uh, drinks booze at discos on school nights. It's uncharacteristic of, of adolescence in the real world, at least in the U.S., even in the 90s. I wasn't going to, to discos or bars at 15 and getting in and getting served alcohol, even if I knew somebody. This shit was not happening. People weren't putting their necks out like that. So I don't think that was a very real world, even 
in 1980s Japan, I don't think that was a very real world expectation to be able to go to a disco on a weeknight and be served alcohol as a 15 year old. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the early episodes. Um, but I think importantly, there was a, a fan q and I think right around the same time, 2010, 2011. And uh, a fan asked Matsumoto if real events of his life inspired the love triangle between Ayukawa, Kasuga, Shikaru. And he replied, no. And he went on to add, I wish two girls fell in love with me at the same time. So again, it comes back to Matsumoto using the Orange Road fan- franchise to create a uh, a very highly enjoyable fantasy, but I don't think it's less of a fantasy than something like Lord of the Rings. I mean, sure, there's no elves, there's no Middle Earth. It's a more recognizable version of a fantasy, but it's still this parallel world that's not quite ours, and it's a scenario that um, I think it's easy to see as this adolescent male um, wish fulfillment. So that obviously leads us into one of the other themes, one of the final themes that I wanted to that I want to lay out the groundwork for, and that is uh, how much does sexism factor into the show? Male chauvinism, misogyny, that type of sexism. Is the show sexist in some ways? That's a question that we're going to talk about. It's a question that's on the table, unfortunately. Even given the female production staff, there was female production staff, and there's no lack of of strong female characters in Ayukawa. I mean, she's just doing whatever the fuck she wants. We do have the presence of these strong female characters, and they were written written that way. So, um, is it like an is there an inherent sexism in the work that's like sort of baked in by the authors and and somehow reflexive of their views, either consciously or subconsciously? Are they trying to say something? Um, I think there might be a little bit of that. It might be uh, tied to cultural attitudes. We will talk about that as we go through this this podcast, these podcast episodes, um, because men do have say over women in this show. Kasuga uh, consistently tries to exert his influence over his sisters, for instance, and control them and their behaviors. So that's that's baked in, and, and how much of that is cultural? We're going to talk about that, or. Or is sexism a subject matter that the authors wish to address via the characters and situations? And probably the view that I lean towards mostly, but we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. We're going to talk about both of these contexts of, of sexism being present in a work doesn't mean that the, the authors of the work were sexist. It might be something that they want to create a commentary on. They want to create a work with that theme because they want to draw attention to it. Uh, and, and that's a perfectly valid reason for including um, sexist characters or sexist situations, situations of misogyny, et cetera. Um, it's not like we're supposed to love or idolize Komatsu and Hata. These are not people that we're meant to look up to, even watching this thing. Um, and they're they're pretty big offenders throughout this show. We'll talk about some of their offenses as we go through, but it's not like we're ever supposed to identify with these characters in any positive way. I mean, we're supposed to look at them like they're dolts. That could be part of the 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 baked in commentary on some of this teen. Um, the, these guys are total dogs, and and they were written that way, and it's intentional. And I don't necessarily think it's it's a a. a um, some deficit of the authors. So we'll talk about that a little bit more as we, as we see the situations play out in the episodes. Um, there's also this general social pressure on Ayukawa to conform. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, all of these themes tie together as, as, as hopefully I'm, I'm able to, um, 
Hopefully, I'm able to convey that properly. These themes tie together, uh, but but there's a, a social pressure on Ayukawa to conform, uh, to behave a certain way at school, um, to to live up to some feminine standard. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily imposed upon her by the authors. I think the authors use Ayukawa's character to comment on some of these general social pressures that she chooses her behaviors. She asserts herself, as I was saying a moment ago. There's no telling her what to do. And she's a very strong female character. I think the the idea of sexism uh, we're going to talk about throughout the show, and I'm going to revisit these themes and topics I think another uh, thing that I want to mention before wrapping this episode up, I'm sorry we went a little long, but I do want to lay the groundwork for some of the subjects that we'll be discussing in future episodes. Um, But the episodes, importantly, the episodes are contemporaneous, relevant to their original air date. So give or take a few days. What that means is if there's an episode that airs on December 21st, the events of that episode take place on or around December 21st. So when each episode is released, it's taking place more or less right around the time of its release. It's not prior to a previous episode's air date or after a future episode's air date. So you know you've got an episode the previous week and you know you've got an episode the next week. That episode that you're watching is going to take place within that one-week span um, around those other episodes. Uh, so this is a fact that kind of in, enhances the current nostalgia factor of the series. So it ties into the themes. For, for us Westerners who watch this, it's very, there, there's a lot of like other, uh, that the Japanese culture is, is very um, present here. It's, it's undeniable. So there's that. There's sort of like this other spaceness. It's this, this foreign geography. It's this um, uh, culture that might seem foreign to us and, and thus somewhat exotic and a little bit unknown and unpredictable to us. But then there's this other timeliness as well. So, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a, a place and a time that's apart from where we are now. And so I think that enhances some of that nostalgia factor and some of that theme uh, that I want to discuss as well. Guys, thank you guys for listening to this episode. I know it was a little bit of a long one, but I did want to lay out um, the stuff that we're going to be talking about next episode, we're going to start talking about episode one of the, of the, uh, television series. So come back for that next week. I really appreciate you guys listening. This is kind of a labor of love for me. So it's not something I'm getting paid for like my other podcast. This is just something I'm doing. Cause I, I do love orange road and want to put something out there for you guys. So please, if you want to hit me up, you can follow me at Abakabu pod, A B C B P O D on Twitter, on Instagram, avocabupod at gmail.com. You can hit me there. Send me your feedback. Send me your ideas. Maybe you completely disagree with me and think I'm full of shit. I want to hear it. Please reach out to me. I'd love to start a dialogue with people who listen to this episode or with people who love Orange Road, period. Also, you can find uh, my other podcast, Shit Happens When You Party Naked, on any of your podcast apps, on the podcast app you're using right now. You can also listen to some other amazing Inner Circle podcast network shows. That's my crew. I'm a part of the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Shows like the Hood Diner, Simmons and Moore Podcast, Hashtag No Offense, The Plunge, Failing Hollywood, and The Untrained Eye. So I hope you guys will check us out, innercirclepn.com. I love and appreciate you guys. I'm looking forward to hollering at you next week to talk about episode one of Orange Road, television series, We're going to get right into it, and it's going to be fucking awesome.